All right, please be seated. And we're continuing our study of the Shorter Catechism today. We are at question 40. We came to a major new section last time. There's two main sections in the Catechism, and we came to the second section with question 39 last week, which transitions from speaking of the things that are, uh, we're to believe concerning God and His salvation, His saving work, transitions from that in the, under the first section to our duty to God. And we have seen that the duty includes both the moral commandments that we have by virtue of being people who are made in God's image. God made us with certain uh, morality. We're going to look at that in some depth today. And then the, um, the other aspect of God's law is that of redemption, where he has given us commandments that we are to repent and believe the gospel. It is our duty to repent and believe. He commands all men everywhere to do that, to believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, and then to walk in him in those ordinances of the gospel that bring blessing to us. Funny, we have to be commanded to such things, but um, we do. And, uh, of course, we often speak of being invited to come to Christ in belief. But really, if you look in the gospel, there are invitations. But many times what you find is actually commandments. As I just said, God has commanded all men everywhere to repent and believe the gospel. So it is our duty then to do so. Questions 4 through 38 are about what we are to believe. And questions uh, 39 through 107 are about the duty that God has given us. So for the remainder of this series, we will be looking at our duty. Let's, let's confess question 39 that introduces this section to us, the one we did last week. Question 39, what is the duty which God requireth of man? The duty which God requireth of man is obedience to his revealed will. Now that's really stating the obvious, isn't it? Obviously, it is our duty, is those that were created by God, to do whatever he's revealed to us to do. And so there are those two things that I mentioned that he has given us now. So today, as we take up question 40, we have a question that introduces us to the first of those sections, the moral law. And then uh, in the future, when we get to question 85, we will start looking at the commandments of repentance and faith and all those that go with that. So let's confess together question 40 that teaches us about the moral law. Question 40, what did God at first reveal to man for the rule of his obedience? The rule which God at first revealed to man for his obedience was the moral law. So you see that the moral law was revealed at first. What does that mean? Well, when God first made us. Looking at this subject today, I want to show you that God made you from the first, made us, human beings, a moral being. Then I want to show you how wonderful that is to be a moral being. And finally, to look at what you ought to do about your immorality that you will find in yourself. So for our scripture reading, I've chosen Romans 2, 1 through 16, where the Apostle Paul gives evidence that all people have a moral nature from creation. 
Now, I don't mean that by that that we are still good, because of course we're not. <laughs> Romans 1 was very clear that that's certainly not the case. But I mean that we are all conscious, conscious as human beings of right and wrong. You all live in the arena of morality. You all perceive morality. I'll say more about that in a minute. But let's go to our scripture reading first. It's Romans 2, and uh, I'll be reading from verse 1 to verse 16. So receive it with faith, receive the word with faith and love. Romans 2 1. Therefore, you are inexcusable, O man, whoever you are who judge. For in whatever, whatever you judge another, you condemn yourself. For you who judge practice the same things. Now, let me just pause here for a minute. Now, Paul was talking about the Gentiles and their idolatry and stuff in chapter 1. But now he's addressing the Jews who had the written moral law of God. And he's talking to them about how that... Um, that law, rather than making them good, actually exposes their sin. They know more. <laughs> so they know what God requires more fully. And so it should humble them rather than making them proud. So he says, you're inexcusable if you're saying, oh, all those bad people over there, they don't have the law. We have the law. Well, yeah, you have the law. Look, listen to what else he says. Verse 2. But we know that the judgment of God is according to truth against those who practice such things. And do you think this, O man, you who judge those practicing such things and doing the same, that you will escape the judgment of God? Or you just, do you despise the riches of his goodness, forbearance, and long-suffering, not knowing that the goodness of God leads you to repentance? But in accordance with your hardness and your impenitent heart, you are treasuring up for yourself wrath in the day of wrath and revelation of the righteous judgment of God who will render to each one according to his deeds, eternal life to those who by patient continuance in doing good seek for glory, honor, and immortality, but to those who are self-seeking and do not obey the truth would obey unrighteousness, indignation, and wrath, tribulation, and anguish on every soul of man who does evil, of the Jew first and also of the Greek, but glory, honor, and peace to everyone who works what is good, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For there is no partiality with God, for as many as have sinned without the law will also perish without the law, and as many as have sinned in the law will be judged by the law. For not the hearers of the law are just in the sight of God, but the doers of the law will be justified. For when Gentiles who do not have the law by nature do the things in the law, these, although not having the law, are a law to themselves, who show the work of the law written in their hearts, their conscience also bearing witness, and between themselves their thoughts accusing or else excusing them, in the day when God will judge the secrets of men by Jesus Christ, according to my gospel. May the Lord bless his word. Let's go straight to our first point, that at your roots... You are a moral being. God made us all with a sense that we ought to do right. That's why you feel guilty when you do something that you believe to be wrong. You all do. 
Suppose you're having a bad day and some innocent person happens to cross your path. Depending on your temperament, either you give them a snub, even though they did nothing to you, or you blow up at them just for being there. You find some fault with what they did and you, you blow up at them. Maybe you even do that to your little toddler. You know, you snub them. They didn't even do anything just because you had a bad day. Or suppose you're a student and you cheat on an exam. You remember that as a kid, perhaps, and when you look to the answers of your uh, person next to you or something and, and you knew you weren't supposed to. I remember one time when I had some bad grades on some tests that I had done. I, I didn't even read the book before I took the test, so I made awful grades. And uh, I had to take them home and get my mom to sign that she had seen these tests. So what I did is I got the best one, which wasn't even very good, and I took it to her and got her to sign it. And then I got my stapler and I stapled the other one and then took them back to the teacher. Well, I, I felt... Felt guilty for doing that. <laughs> I was being deceitful. I knew I did wrong. There was no doubt about that. I, I, did, I felt guilty because I was a moral being. I am a moral being. But it's also true that you feel good and right when you do something that's right. Suppose you see an old lady who's struggling to carry her groceries. She uh, has her cane and she's obviously struggling to get up a flight of stairs with the things that she has. So you stop and You go over to help her, and you help her to do what she needs to do. You know that it was the right thing to do. You don't think, oh, I wonder if I I should have done that. You know, it's something that you are glad about. In Romans 2, Paul points out that everyone has a moral nature like this from creation. He explains how even the Gentiles who do not have God's law still have a moral nature about them. Look at verse 14 and 15. He says, For when Gentiles who do not have the law by nature do the things in the law, these although not having the law are a law to themselves, who show the work of the law written in their hearts, their conscience also bearing witness, and between themselves their thoughts accusing or else excusing them. Let's break this down so that we can see what Paul is saying here. First, he shows us that Gentiles, people outside of the covenant people, have a moral nature even though they don't have the written law code. You see in verse 14 how he describes it. For when the Gentiles who, who do not have the law. The Gentiles are the people outside of Israel, outside of the church. For that reason, they didn't have the law written out for them the way the Jews did. They did not know the Ten Commandments that God gave to his people to summarize the standards of right and wrong. But even though they did not have the law, Paul says that by nature, they do the things that are in the law. They don't go around randomly killing each other. And parents look after their children and they know it's wrong to steal or to break vows and promises that they have made they even had marriage and they knew that adultery was wrong and they knew it was wrong to cheat people paul says that even though they don't have the law they are a law unto themselves no one has to tell them the difference 
between right and wrong. They know it within themselves as a people. Paul is showing that they even sometimes do better at keeping the law than God's covenant people who have the law, which is a shameful thing. We see that sometimes today. And he explains where this law that they have within them comes from. Verse 15, he says that they show the work of the law written in their hearts. It was something that was written into them. It's a law that works in them because it was written in their heart, in their inner person. This, of course, comes from creation because God is the one who made us in his own image from the very beginning. That's why even though we are fallen, we are still moral beings. We can't really get rid of that stamp, that imprint, that that morality. We can't escape it. People try. Sometimes people hate being moral. They hate, they, they feel guilty for the things that they do. They don't want to feel shame and guilt when they do wrong. But in fact, it's kind of funny to see someone who denies morality because, you know, they want their sexual freedom or whatever they want to say, oh, there's nothing wrong with that. And they try to, they try to justify that. But then when somebody, and they say, there's no moral absolutes. But then someone cheats them. You know, they're... they're their boss doesn't give them their paycheck when they work for two weeks because he, he spent it going on his vacation. And, uh, you know, he, he wanted to go on vacation. Why should he give them a check? You know, they just worked for him for two weeks. He promised to give them money, but there's no moral laws. There's no right and wrong. Well, all of a sudden, they want justice. You're wrong to me. You need to be punished. I'm going to take you to court. You can't have it both ways. If there are no morals, then nobody can say that wrong was ever done. If you have something I want, and the best way for me to get it is to kill you, who can say I did wrong? If I'm stronger than you are and I want to kill you, that's up to me. I mean, why not? You know, it's not wrong to like, kill and eat a plant. So supposing I don't want somebody else around, maybe they irritate me or something like that. Well, it, what's, what's wrong with it? You don't like somebody, maybe you don't, you don't like anybody that has... I mean, blonde hair or something. So what, you just, you'll just kill them. I don't, I don't like the dandelions in my yard. They have the, the yellow hair. And so, you know, I pluck up all the dandelions in my yard. And then I see people out with blonde hair. I don't want them around either. So I'll just, uh, I'll, I'll just cut them off. Nobody says, well, yeah, I don't, I don't believe in morality. That's okay. It's not a problem. If, that's, you know, if you're strong enough to do that and you can do it, that's, what's, what's the big deal? No, they can, they can try to argue sometimes to get into some deep philosophy and things like that. But everybody knows. <laughs> they know it's wrong. Paul explains that their own conscience witnesses to them that the law is written in their hearts. It's, it's just there. They can't get away from it. In verse 15, he says, their conscience also bearing witness and then each other as well, all having consciences. He says, and between themselves, their thoughts accusing or else excusing them. So everyone has that conscience that shows up. You can see more evidence of it in the way that, that it makes people feel compelled to defend what they have done or not done. They start to justify why they did something. You, know, you all do that. Your conscience accuses you and then you argue with your conscience 
and you try to defend the wrongs that you want to do or that you have done, well, I'm doing this because, and you come up with some kind of thing that you hope will be plausible maybe to other people, and you try to make it plausible to yourself. You get into arguments with other people, you know, well, you did it last time, so uh, now it's my turn. You got to go first last time, so now it's my turn. You know, you have these moral arguments. You always take more turns than anybody else, you say to them, to make it even stronger. And sometimes we'll advocate for someone else. You know, you'll say, uh, hey, you've been, you've been taking food to that needy person for, you know, a month every, every day now. You know, I, I should do that sometime. <laughs> and you, you, you advocate for them. But, but how did God go about getting this moral law to us when he made us? What, what did he do? Well, he simply made us upright. It's just part of our creation that's built into us. We're moral beings. He made us moral beings that know right from wrong. This is part, this is part of what it is to be made in the image of God. How do I know that? How do I know that's part of what it is to be made in the image of God? Because when Paul speaks of redemption, he speaks of it as being how we are renewed in the image of God. And in talking about that, he doesn't say, you know, you're going to get, a, like you've got an ugly nose, you're going to get your nose fixed or something like that. But he says, Colossians 3.10, that God is renewing us in knowledge according to the image of him who created him. Okay, so our, our knowledge is messed up, what we know uh, about God and right and wrong. So if we're being renewed in knowledge according to his image, that means that we were originally created with this knowledge that we're being brought back to the image in which we were created. The shadow of that knowledge is still there. The mechanism of knowing right and wrong and of knowing that wrong is wrong, that right is right, is still there. So God is bringing us back into that knowledge in which we were created. In in Ephesians, in a parallel passage, he talks about being renewed in holiness and righteousness after the likeness of him that made us. So in revealing the moral law to us at creation, God did not, you should understand, have to sit down and give us the Ten Commandments. You know, like Adam came from his hand. And he said, okay, Adam, here are the Ten Commandments. Like, I want to give you these commandments. You can put them on the wall and, you, you know, remember these things. This is how you're to live. No, he didn't need to do that because it was built into Adam. He simply put it in our hearts and our hearts were not then clouded by sin and rebellion as they are now. They were not corrupted by sin. So we had a, a pure and a clear understanding of, of the right and wrong. We knew that God had created us, and so he ought to be worshipped. He's our God, so he ought to be obeyed. We should not have any other gods before him. We should worship him in the way that pleases him, not in some way that doesn't please him. I mean, if you have a birthday for someone and, and they hate uh, liver and onions and you have a big dinner of liver and onions for their birthday, it's not, not a very good thing, is it? And we want to do what God, God wants. He knew that he had sanctified. We, we knew that he had sanctified the seventh day that he, after he finished making the world, that he set that day apart. So, of course, we don't go and, uh, you know, do something has nothing to do with that on that day that he set apart as a holy day that, that we would remember him. 
We keep that day holy. We knew that he had created male and female. We read about that, didn't we? And how it said that he had the, um, brought the, man, the, the woman to the man and that uh, he declared that the two would become one flesh. So you leave father and mother and the two become one flesh. So we knew that adultery was wrong. God had created that relationship. It wasn't to be one that was with other people. We should be faithful to the bond that, that we had with our spouse. We knew that we ought to care for the children that we brought forth. You don't leave them there to starve or, or whatever, but you, you look after them. You bring them up and they to honor their parents. We knew that we should not kill or steal, that we should give to each other, do things for each other, serve each other. We knew that we should not lie, but that we should speak the truth. We knew that we should not be envious of others, but should rather rejoice when they are blessed. Of course, if we love them, we're going to be glad when it goes well for them. And we should be sad if something was to happen to them. God only spelled all this out for us by giving us the Ten Commandments after we fell. To help us because of the confusion that sin had brought to us and that corruption had clouded our minds. Sin brought this resistance as well as confusion about the will of God. Sin is the reason that we distort and twist what is right and what is wrong. For this reason, it was a great mercy of God to give us written commandments. Because it kind of hits us and we hear it and it brings to mind the things that, that we're trying to gloss over that are in our life. So you see then that we are moral at our roots so I told you it was the first thing we wanted to look at. Now the next thing is that I want you to understand that it is a very wonderful thing to be a moral being. It means that you have the ability to consciously please God and to serve God. Trees and waterfalls, bears and beetles please God to be sure. They're all able to please God quite well. But as a moral being, you can do things in a conscious way that you know please God. You can knowingly please God. The beetles and the waterfalls, they don't know that they're pleasing God. They do, but they don't, they're not really, they don't, they don't have a way of being involved in, in the pleasure of obeying God. You can imitate God's kindness and his goodness toward the people around you. You can love him as he has loved us. You can love others. As a moral being, you're able to distinguish between right and wrong, good and bad. To know, and, you, and to know also that you ought to do right. Beautiful deeds can be done. Making things for other people, doing things that they will enjoy, caring for them, teaching them, protecting them, helping them. There, there's all kinds of ways that you can do good. One of the greatest joys is to know that you're doing what is right and what is pleasing to God. The sad thing is that because we're fallen, we often experience the weight and the burden of guilt. Guilt in itself is a good thing because it's like an alarm that shows us that we're doing wrong. Our society has decided guilt is a bad thing. So when people are all guilty and weighed down because they're not serving others, not caring for others, and we give them pills and then they say, oh, that makes me feel better takes away the guilt. It's terrible. They'll never repent. They'll never turn to God when that's done. But as those who are moral, you see, we at least have the potential 
for repentance and then for the joy that comes from doing what God has given us to do. So how we ought to yearn then that we would live moral lives. Do you remember what we saw about Paul when we looked a while back at the blessing of that was called peace of conscience? One of the benefits that we have from redemption is peace of conscience. He gave this testimony in Acts 24, 15. He said, I hope to God, which I'm sorry, I have hope in God, which they themselves also accept that there will be a resurrection of the dead, both of the just and the unjust. This being so, I myself always strive to have a conscience without offense toward God and men. So what every one of you ought to do, as I said to you when I preached on that subject, strive always to have a conscience without offense. God gave you your conscience. It's a gift so that you could live for him. He wrote his law in your heart so that you could know what pleases him. You only do harm to yourself when you trample on your conscience every time that you do something that you know you shouldn't do. It's what, you see, it's the way we were made. It's what it is to be human, to be made in God's image. And you trample upon yourself. And I tell you, it brings misery. You know, you talk to people in prison or something that have been trampling on their consciences over and over again. They're not happy. It makes you miserable. Beware of Satan. He tries to dupe you. He tries to say that if you do something that's contrary to your conscience, it will make you very, very happy. He will try to make you think that happiness comes from immorality, for example. He wants you to think about the rush that you get from sin without thinking about the disappointment and the guilt that it brings. And people say, well, I could just get rid of the guilt, then then I could have the pleasure. He wants you to die. To, he, he wants you to die to your, uh, Satan wants you to die to your morality. He wants you to become numb and empty. A hollowed out soul whose conscience is buried. That's what Satan wants. He wants you to implode into yourself as you seek your own gain and you ignore God and others. He has the world as his canvas to paint a false picture of sin as something beautiful that will make you happy. You can see how happy all the rich, beautiful people in Hollywood are and what great relationships they have with each other. Those long-lasting relationships that they have of caring and, and nurturing one another. You see the glamorous picture you know, of the two that are, are getting together and it's on the, the news thing or whatever. And then uh, you wait for a year or two, sometimes not even that long. And you see, oh, they're breaking up. You know, they got into other relationships or whatever. They, they get sucked into this, this selfish, this, this consuming selfishness that tramples over their moral nature. Satan destroys us by getting us to live for ourselves. And then we become more and more bitter toward God and toward others. But Jesus tells us that we will live if we die to our own selfish selves that way. We're so fixated on self that we don't live for others, and that's what makes us miserable. We need to die to self so that we can start living. We really do live then. But we must do more than seek to live moral lives ourselves. We should do what we can to encourage others to live moral lives as well. 
We should appeal to the morality that is in everyone. It is convincing. We should encourage people to be honest with their own conscience, to follow what they know to be right. What an absolutely beautiful and marvelous world this would be if everyone did just that. If everyone did as Paul and sought to have a conscience that was a void of offense toward God and man, it would be a very different place. When you appeal to people about this, their conscience is on your side. Why? Because they know that you're right. They know that they ought to live according to what they believe to be right. They know that there is a God in heaven who ought to be served. They know that too. You do well to appeal to the knowledge that is in them. And parents, let me tell you, it will help you a whole, whole lot to recognize that your children are moral beings. Even when they're little, false psychologists have told us that children don't understand morality when they're little. It is simply not true. Don't let the world dupe you when it tells you that your children don't know right from wrong. They are very moral from their birth. They know that it is wrong to whine and complain. They know that it is wrong when they're defiant and when they disobey you. Call them on it. Their conscience is on your side. And if you appeal to their conscience from a young age and you don't act like they're moral idiots, then they'll love you for it. They'll love you for it. Why? Well, I, I, you know, I hate seeing unhappy, disobedient little children whose parents don't call them out on their sin. These children are like little buckets of misery and guilt. Like they're all like, oh, they're all churning inside. They're just, oh, and they're frustrated and there's no, there's no rest for them. And parents leave these tender little ones, these, these sinful little ones, but still tender to themselves with their rotten little consciences just gnawing away all day on the inside of them. It's a miserable business. When you have a rotten conscience, you start learning ways to shut it up. And a lot of times it comes out with anger and bitterness and it comes out with worse behavior. It leads to more and more sin, more and more hardness, more and more guilt, more and more unhappiness, addictions of all kinds that you gravitate to to try to find some kind of appeasement some kind of rest you can set your children free when you have little children you can set them free from a wretched conscience by rebuking them and chasing them and calling them to repentance and to to come to the lord and to find his forgiveness go on use the rod when it's needed people say oh it's a terrible thing it's not a terrible thing it's a merciful thing you are setting these little ones free from from that bondage that's going to wreck their whole lives the sooner you start freeing them the better it will be you know what it's like i remember when our children were little and they'd be all miserable and you know they were churning away like i was talking about and, and, and you bring correction to them and then they were happy you know, they're back playing again. Everything's good. Everything, because their conscience had been addressed. You see, we need to remember that when we deal with other people too. We need to, we need to be straight with them. You know, someone, 
someone asks us about, you know, what their problems are. And you say, you know, you shouldn't be living this way. Because this isn't right. And God says this isn't right. And that's why you're having so much misery. Well, that leads me to the last thing I want to talk about regarding our moral nature. And that is, what do you do about the immorality? And when we see that we commit sin, that we do things that are, are not morally upright, well, I'll tell you what you should do. First of all, you should be deeply humbled by it. Just look at you. I mean, you're part, you're part of the human race that was created from God's hand upright, moral, true, made to live beautiful lives in a beautiful, blessed world with thanksgiving to your holy and just God. Now look at you now. Look at our world. Nations at war with each other. The rich oppressing the poor. The poor using government power to try to oppress the rich. The poor envy and resent the rich. We can't even get along with each other in our own families. And we all want to blame the other person. Which doesn't even make sense. How could everybody, how could it always be the other person that's wrong in every case? Because there's two people that are, are saying the other one's wrong. They're not right. They can't both be wrong. We, we've rebelled against God and we've bought into the lie that we should live our own way instead of serving Him. And it's just wrong. And look at your life. You know better than anyone else that you constantly do things that are not right. Even if you've hardened your conscience, you still know about the wrong that you do. And God made you in his image to be holy and happy, to be beautiful. Yet you have believed the lie that you can't be happy if you're holy. That's blasphemy. That's to critique the goodness of God and say that his way is harmful. That's what Satan wants you to think. And it is a lie. It is an utter lie. And like I mentioned to you, when I see people going, I mentioned this this morning, when I see people going down a pathway that's contrary to God's way, when I was younger sometimes it looked kind of appealing, but now when I see that I think, oh, they're going down a path of misery. And sometimes a person can be so happy as they're pursuing down a sinful pathway they're kind of torn up inside, but they can be, but they're the thrill of the, the thing that they're, they're pursuing. It kind of is a, like a, a, covers up the, the conscience. In this world, we will all have many sorrows if we follow the Lord, but we'll be bursting with joy within. Remember how I showed you when we looked at the benefit of redemption called joy in the Holy Spirit? How the apostles said that they wrote what they wrote in Scripture that we might be filled with joy? Very important. And how Jesus said that he came that we might have joy forever. Well, your sin is ugly. It is rancid and it destroys joy. God who made you upright hates it. And you need to see how ugly it is. You are a moral being and your sin defiles you. It wrecks you. And then there is no excuse for your immorality. Think about it. What excuse do you have for knowing what is right? for knowing that you ought to do right, and for not doing it. We try to come up with excuses. 
But really, when you know what you ought to do and you do something else, how, what excuse is there for that? It's wicked. It's sinful. There's no excuse. Be honest about this. Quit, quit searching out excuses. Somebody did this to me or someone, whatever it is. There's no excuse. And recognize that you have no basis for questioning the punishment that God has appointed for creatures like us. You'd be humble. Creatures made in his image, made moral, who know to do right and instead do wrong. He has appointed us to the same place that he appointed for Satan and his angels. Place of weeping and gnashing of teeth. Where you're in anguish writhing in your own guilt and filth in the place where the worm of conscience does not die. You just keep churning out your filth forever and ever. This is totally what you deserve. And it's wrong to say that you deserve anything better. It has become very popular in today's apostate church in North America to deny such punishment. We want to say that it, would be, it is unjust for the Lord to send people to such a place. That can only be said by a people who for generations have been trampling on their consciences and helping each other to do that. We were made moral and just look at us. The Lord has every reason reason to cast us into the lake of fire. We deliberately do evil when we know that we ought to do good. We know that we ought to worship God. Instead, we deny him and avoid him. Be honest with your conscience. Be humble in your wickedness. But do not stop there. It would be terrible if you stopped there, seeing how you're defiled and how you're guilty and deserving of punishment. No, come to Jesus Christ with all your wretchedness, with that soul of yours that does not even do what you know you ought to do. He is the only one who can redeem you from your wretched condition. He can redeem you because He is God. As God, he has the power and the authority to do all that is required to take a sinner like you and to save you. And he can redeem you because he is also man. He became man in order that he might redeem us. That's why he became human flesh. Even though he is God, the only way to redeem us was to become one of us and to himself bear our punishment. And let me tell you what he did to redeem wretched sinners like you. You probably know this. He came and he lived the life that you should have lived. He came as a king to represent everyone that was to be gathered into his kingdom and ever had been gathered in his kingdom. He takes all his people under his wing and he represents them living a godly, righteous, beautiful life that we failed to live. And then as our representative, he goes before the father as our priest, our high priest, And he offers the sacrifice for our sins in the holy place where all of those that he represents, all who are truly in the kingdom of his righteousness or will be. And the sacrifice he offered was the only sacrifice that is acceptable and able to truly pay for our sins. He himself, he gave himself a ransom for us. He took the full punishment of them as the man who was also God. And his sacrifice was completely acceptable in the sight of God. That frees your conscience when you're able to trust in him as your redeemer and know that God has pardoned your sin. 
That's still not all he does. He might have done this for his people, but how does he get them to even want to come to him for this blessing? Left to your own, left on their own, they are content. You are content to just keep going in your sinful way. Even when forgiveness and deliverance is offered, if you would come to Christ, you're still content to just keep on going and ignoring the forgiveness, ignoring the call of God. And that's what you'll do forever. But Jesus, being anointed with the Holy Spirit, poured out his spirit on his people, the Holy Spirit, the spirit of truth. And the spirit exposes to you the truth about your wretchedness. He gives you an unsettledness in that, a conviction of the wrong that is in you. He shows you the beauties of Christ and the beauties of his saving work and how much you need that saving work. And he gives you a new heart so that you're willing and so that you will come to Jesus for that salvation. And that same spirit promises to completely renew us when we see Jesus so that we will live the moral lives that we were created to live. Now I appeal to you all, if you come to Jesus to be delivered from your sin, be honest in your conscience. You know that you ought to come to him. You know that. Don't play games with this. Don't pretend that you don't need him. Don't pretend that he is not real. Believe and you will be saved. Look to him to restore you. You can never have your conscience cleansed from your sinful works apart from coming to Jesus. Remember what I said about living a moral life and encouraging others to do so because that's what you were made to do? Well, this is where it begins with us. We have sinned and we must come to Jesus so that we can be pardoned and restored. And then we can bear witness to others of Christ and of the cleansing that comes from him. I will close with Romans 6, 20 through 23. For when you are slaves of sin, you are free in regard to righteousness. What fruit did you have then in the things of which you are now ashamed? For the end of those things is death. But now, having been set free from sin and having become slaves of God, you have your fruit to holiness and the end everlasting life. For the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Please stand and let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the last words that we read from your holy word. That the wages of sin is death, but that the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Father, we are actually glad if we stop to think about it that the wages of sin is death. That you do not tolerate sin. That you will not have sin in your holy habitation. Lord, we think rather lightly of sin, but we realize that it should never be thought lightly of and that we're sorely mistaken 
We don't realize, Lord, the misery that it brings to us and to our world. We are duped by Satan so often. We pray, Lord, that you would deliver us from such confusion and that you would help us, O oh Lord, from, that we would not fall into such perversity. We pray that we would be able to come to you with integrity, that we would receive your word, that we would then be able to live out what you have spoken. Father, every day our There are things that come into our lives that our conscience shows us the way that we should go. And that many times we do not go the way that we know. We pray that you would help that to change in us. That by the working of your spirit that you would change that. Father, I pray that if there is anyone here that does not know the Lord Jesus Christ as Savior, they still have a conscience that has never been cleansed. We pray, O Lord, that you would help them not to go about trying to cleanse their conscience by some other way, by a Barabbas way, as we saw this morning. But they would do it by the way of Christ. They would find freedom and cleansing in Him alone. Truly, He is the only one that can take away our guilt and our sin. Father, what miserable ways we employ to do that. Sometimes it's drunkenness. Sometimes it's sexual immorality some kind of a candy that we consume to try to bury our guilty conscience. We pray, Lord, that you would deliver us from such folly and that we would be a people who begin to think not of how we can avoid our guilt, but rather of how we can please you and that we would walk in, your, in the light of your truth day by day. Oh, Father, do the work that only you can do. Thank you so much for sending Jesus our Savior. Thank you that in him that we have eternal life and the hope of blessing. For it is in his name that we pray. Amen. Receive now the blessing of the Lord our God. Now, may the God of peace who brought up our Lord Jesus from the dead, that great shepherd of the sheep, through the blood of the everlasting covenant, make you complete in every good work to do his will, working in you what is pleasing in his sight, through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen.